Hello and welcome. My name's Andrew Horsfield and this is The Messy Middle. We all know success rarely occurs in a straight line, so being able to find your way, not lose your way when things get tough, is now a critical skill for any modern day leader. So this podcast is designed for astute leaders like you who want to learn lessons from inspiring leaders who are delivering results in a demanding context. You can listen to other episodes, subscribe, or find out a little more at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. I read a lot about leadership, culture, and performance, and when reading, often question how much of this theory would survive contact with reality. The constant demand, competing priorities, and competitive environments that are constantly challenging how we work, lead, and live. So I sought out this month's guest to gain a real-world perspective on leading high-performing people, teams, and cultures. Jane Martino is a proven entrepreneur who has founded, scaled, and sold multiple businesses across marketing, media, and digital platforms. She's been a director of the Melbourne Footy Club, is a sought-after advisor in the Australian startup scene, and she's also the co-founder and chair of Smiling Mind, the tech-based not-for-profit that has delivered mindfulness meditation programs to 5 million people since launching in 2012. And along the way with her success, Jane's also built a significant portfolio of wisdom that she shares in this conversation. We talk about how she makes decisions, the common failure point for most business ideas, what she's noticed about those companies who do culture well, as well as how she manages her time, energy and attention. So grab a pen and paper and get ready to jot down some seriously practical and helpful advice from one of Australia's best entrepreneurs and leaders, Jane Martino. Jane, welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you and leverage your experience to what I think is going to be a really, really great conversation. I wanted to kick off with a perhaps a, a strange question, but I'm wondering what are the factors for you that determine whether you jump out of bed and say, good morning, God, or God, it's morning? Well, like with most things, it's choice. I really do try every day to jump out and think about all the good things that I do have to jump out of bed for, of which most days there's a lot, you know, and uh, even those days which I have had where there doesn't seem to be as much, I do and have always thought about my mindset and the impact that that is going to make on the day I have and the future I have sort of more broadly. So I'm definitely that type of person that likes to choose to make my morning a good one. And is that a deliberate practice that you you do every day or is that just a a natural state that you find yourself in now because of the work that you do and the the life of experience you've had around this particular area of mindfulness and gratitude? Yeah, I think it's evolved into that. I think my personality to begin with has always been one naturally curious interested in growing the level of EQ and exploring that side of my life and my personality and and continually growing and evolving as a person. But I would say it was probably in the last sort of four to five years that I've really honed in on and expanded on that and said, okay, actually 
every thought I have has a ripple effect. Every choice I make, there is an impact. And I, I actually am in charge of that. So I think I've always known that. I've always worked towards that, but it's definitely crystallized in the last few years. And so now I do make uh, a deliberate choice to have quite a strict sort of morning routine and, and work out through experimentation what works for me. But yeah, it's, it's years of honing is, is the answer. Do you mind if we sort of double click on that a little bit for me to ask you a little bit more? No, go for it. I subscribe to to what you've just shared so deeply about this ability for us to choose and, and our responses more than our circumstances sort of dictate how we see and view the world. Do you have certain techniques or tools or processes you followed in those past four years that you've learned or honed that listeners could take away yeah, I mean, I, I have examples in that time period, both personal and professional. So in that period, I separated from my husband and was running a global company um, that was about to be listed on the ASX, probably valued at a couple of hundred million dollars. And I was, I'd been appointed CEO of that company um, and a couple of months prior to us listing uh, Google then decided they'd take our application off Play Store, uh, of which we had clients in, you know, India, US, UK and here in Australia and we just didn't have the runway beyond sort of three-plus months to be able to continue operating without the listing. I had within that time period both personally and professionally what most people would call uh, yeah. a big come down. In the moment, yes, it was certainly harder to get up in the morning and find the good things, but that is actually how I did hone my practice. So there were two main things I would say. One is I really lent on and got a little bit more rigid with making sure I took the 10 to 20 minutes a day to meditate and have that quiet time. My mind was often in those periods very talkative and busy, uh, but I still sat down and did the practice. And the other thing was, and it's something I've always done with the kids, is we do our three great things at the dinner table every day. And so I made a commitment to still do my three great things, the things I was grateful for and do those, you know, either in the morning or at the close of the day. So, yeah, it was a combination of taking responsibility for my own short practices and a couple of things I could commit to, outsourcing to experts and filling my cup in different ways and allowing other people to help me do that. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking was just you mentioned the word practice, which I can really resonate with because I think there's a difference between us finding our own way with the access of some help where needed, but also finding your own way rather than taking someone else's methodology and just trying to implement that directly and find the way out through someone else's perspective. Do you have a, a take on that at all around how you found that for yourself? I'm really finding it fascinating because it's doing it in a demanding context, which is part of what this podcast is all about. Uh, like I work with a lot of startups and founders and 
traditionally, and, and I've done this as well, um, where you don't sleep as much and you work so hard and you do lots of late nights. And so when I talk about a morning routine, for instance, I, I feel them brace and think, oh, I can't do that. I, I, I don't go to bed till one in the morning. And my point is always, you actually don't need to do it in the morning. If you are not a morning person, that is fine. Like do it at 3 p.m., you know, when you might have a bit of a slump rather than reaching for a chocolate bar. As long as you carve out that 30 minutes um, for your time and your reflection time, that's the key thing. And it's the same with your actual practice. Like it's trial and error. It's reading things, trying things, working out what really clicks for you and what doesn't, letting go of what doesn't and being okay with it. I always recommend Robin Sharma's 5am club was really good for me because that's a, a strong example. He is religious about getting up at five five till six, that's a one-hour window, three lots of 20 minutes broken up into, you know, reflection time. So that could be journaling or, you know, meditation, Mm -hmm. 20 minutes of vigorous exercise and then 20 minutes of education. That could be a podcast or newspaper reading or anything, you know, a book that you're reading, anything that enriches and educates you. Now, I love that philosophy. I need more flexibility than that. So I go by that you know, I like doing exercise plus reflection and meditation plus some reading, but I will chunk that down in a way that suits me at a time that suits me. You, so you take from everything what you need and what works for you and really you connect with, and then you curate it into a really regular practice. Just going back to what you mentioned before as well, and this obviously plays into your role as the chair and founder of Smiling Mind. I'm really interested in your take in the line between productive struggle and mental health anxiety in terms of one that's healthy, that productive struggle that we need to go through to stretch, to grow, to take on new challenge where we do have setback and moving into the place of, of mental health where it's it's too much and too demanding and starting to take a toll. I'd just be interested in, in your take on on both of those things. We are living in a society in a time where often hard things are seen as negative and there are struggles and there are things that hurt but, you know, if you have the right things in support in place, you can make it through. Now, I think that's quite different to having, you know, quite a chronic mental illness um, where there's definitely still you know, ways that you can manage that and live a really healthy and happy and productive life. You just need to make sure, again, you have the right support in place, which is seeing a professional, you know, engaging in things like mindfulness exercise and all of the things that your professionals ask you to do. And then there's that spot in the middle, which is probably where the struggles get too much and where our thoughts and anxieties start to really take hold and, they override a lot of the other things that might be happening or going on for us or our ability to control those. That is what you're talking about and that that's where it does sort of tip over into more than just a productive struggle. But I think it's the ability to, to be able to recognise that and still also recognise the fact that they are just thoughts and actually 
again, we're generating those thoughts and, and we're choosing to be taken away with those thoughts rather than be in the moment. And if I look at myself, that's just the skill that I have built up for being a practicing meditator for so many years is not that I have meditations that are quiet. You know, my mind constantly thinks that's what it's designed to do. That's why it's so clever. Um, But the skill I have learned is the ability to bring my attention to a point and continually bring it back to that point, which is the present moment. Outside of meditation, do you have other tools or techniques that help you manage setbacks and struggle that inevitably come with, you know, doing things that are stretching and ambitious and positively challenging? I I think the number one thing for me, if I look back, particularly in a business sense of when I've just felt like things, well, they did fail. The thing I would really cling to was the moments where I would just go out into the garden and I would just pot plants. I would, or I would play with the dogs or walk the dogs, or I would spend time with the boys and they'd make me laugh about something really silly. Or, and it's those moments where you realize you are in the moment and you're taken away from everything else and you're just feeling more grounded and connected and all the other stuff matters a lot less with with those simpler moments and those simpler tasks. Um, that's certainly something that I really found helpful and, and also realised that, okay, it was on the front cover of the Australian Financial Review that the business went under and that was something that I was a part of and there was all kinds of I guess, shame and and things that I had to work through for that. But at the end of the day, my kids still love me. The people that matter in my life still care about me and actually couldn't care less about that. The things that really matter are all still there. If we go back a little bit in terms of you started your first business, Undertone Media, at 26, what advice would you give yourself looking back now in Wiser Shoes to that startup, Jane, at 26? So in terms of advice, there's lots of really practical things. You know, I'd say when you're hiring people, don't just hire off referral and gut instinct, you know, use some rigour and some process. When you are feeling upset or reactive to a, a client or something that's happened, give yourself 24 hours, you know, Um <laughs> You don't need to micromanage and control everything. You can play more of a coaching role as a leader and that will get you better results anyway. You know, so all of those types of things that I've learned. But in saying that, like I think there were also things at 26 and the way I attacked that business that I just think was something that my now 43-year-old self could learn a lot from also. You know, there wasn't feelings of, oh, what if this doesn't work out? There wasn't the thought of, does that person believe in what I'm telling them and do I have credibility sitting at this table? You know, all of those. So it's it swings and roundabouts, right? Like I think there's lots of wisdom and, and beautiful growth that I could share with that 
26-year-old person, I think I'd let her just run run her race. Being a, a great entrepreneur and, and leader are not always two complementary skills that work together. How have you managed to do that so well? I don't know that I did early on. I think the things I would sort of call out are probably two things. One is is a sense of, of control and the other is a sense of perfectionism. And they are two things that, you know, as a leader, as a parent, as a partner, they're just absolute relationship killers. But they're also <laughs> things that make entrepreneurs really quite unique and special and, and mean that often that the products and the businesses they build are, are astounding. And so it's, it's about management. It's about understanding the parts of those strengths that are weaknesses and, and working around them. So there are things you can do to manage it, but the first step, like with everything, is recognising that you have those weaknesses. Otherwise, you don't really know how to work around them. Yeah, there's almost like a recognition of a tipping point where it goes from helpful and positive to get that great product and quality that you're talking about to that relentless pursuit where it, it becomes a hindering factor for yourself and those people around you. Do you have support structures in place or have you in the past that help you navigate that fine line between the helpful and the hindering parts of yourself? To be honest, I, I put most of that on myself as my responsibility uh, to, to manage. I can, I can feel it when it's, you know, it's like a, a, a deep fire rising uh, inside. So generally that's where I am like, okay, cool, I need to just step back, do a meditation, you know, or just actually shut the laptop and, and come back to this tomorrow you know, and, and then it's also the, the slap of perspective. It's like, okay, this matters to me. Does it matter that much to the end user or to the business? Is it the difference between succeeding or not succeeding and kind of pulling back and, and getting that perspective? And so often, you know, and I ask this to the founder, you know, is this the difference between smashing the monthly targets or not? And, and very, very rarely will they say, Oh, absolutely. Mm, and then, mm. you know, for sure having complementary characters around you. So I've always done disc profiling with when I've hired people uh, and made sure that there's really, you know, I'm very high D, high I, um, so high influence and high, you know, dominance and, and most entrepreneurs and CEOs are but you do not want all high Ds, high Is on that executive bench, you know. You, you just It's just not healthy for you or the business. And so it's things like that, the diversity piece uh, and not just in terms of, of gender and but in every way is so important, including, you know, personality type and strengths and weaknesses. So they're just some of the things. You've started, sold and been been part of just some really successful companies and cultures. So I'm, I'm wondering in relation to that diversity that you spoke about, because having difference and making difference work is two very different things. What have you noticed about the workplaces who have done culture well? Are there things that you've seen that are consistent to to make difference work within cultures and companies? Yeah, and this is a really interesting question, especially now because we're all remote and disconnected and 
I even this morning uh, spoke to one of the senior executives at Smiling Mind who I hadn't yet met and she has been onboarded and in the company for a couple of months and never met another human. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's incredibly challenging um, <laughs> for, for new yeah. people coming into an organisation. So, no, I, I think now even more so it's about connection. It starts with the connection that people have with the why or the vision of the company and making that really clear to them and meaningful for them and then also giving them a connection between that and the contribution they're making to bringing that to life. Uh, I think, you know, that is in my mind along with a whole host of other things but that is key to building culture because the best cultures I've seen are, are the ones where people care so much about what they're doing why they're coming to work and the connection they have with their leaders. And, you know, um, the business I spoke about before was a really good example of that. We had over 60 people around the world uh, that worked for the business and told them a number of weeks out, you know, we said, look, guys, it's probably not looking good and you're so devoted we just want you, you've got families, many of you have mortgages, other responsibilities. We want you to look after yourself. Please go and find another job. We'll support you to do so. And and not one of them did, not one. And, you know, which was incredibly hard and sad then at the end, probably made it worse for mm, certainly mm. the senior people in that business and the founder. But what that did show me is that when people care so much, um, they don't want to leave even when it looks like the ship's sinking. You know, they will, They want to stay and fight and they, and that's for a number of reasons, but also it's because they, they won't leave you alone. Um, and, and that's because you have really allowed them to connect with the impact they're making in the company. And it, it sounds, I mean, the, the thing I want to highlight, I suppose, in what you're saying in case people either either glance over it or or haven't taken it in fully is most of what you've mentioned there is just a deep connection to the human. It, it, it's not big and grand and massive dinners out at a private restaurant. There are some fairly humanistic things that you've mentioned that really drive motivation and momentum within a business. Yeah, I mean, I think people want to know that you care about them and their career pro pro progression and what's going on in their life. I mean, I think that is such a basic human need and desire and I I think it's our responsibility to help deliver that. Yeah, and I think it's so easy to overlook under the pressure and duress of results and performance and things that we often get measured on is we push people into that lens as opposed to, some of the things that you're talking about now that produce those results. Uh, I'm wondering as well to pick up a, a little bit of your, uh, I mean, you're a passionate supporter and you've got a, a strong presence in the startup community as well as a whole range of other ventures that we've talked about in the introduction. If you had to group the failures that you see successful people making into three buckets of either leadership, ideation or execution, 
How would you split failure if you could? Is there a larger percentile of what people are failing in to execute their ideas? Is it a leadership thing? Is it the idea thing or is it an execution thing? I would say it's 70% execution and I would say it's 25% leadership and 5% ideation. And I, I would say that because even supposed bad ideas, if they have great leaders and they're strongly executed, will probably succeed. Mm. Um, and on the flip side of that, you know, and I, I get asked this question in the context of investment a lot, you know, like what, what makes a good investment? And I, I would never, ever, ever say the idea. Like that, that to me is important, of course, um, and I personally have to have a connection with the business and the idea. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, uh, I invest in the founder and and the executive team, the execution team, who's executing this idea. Are they proven? Do I, you know, am I confident that they can execute on the idea? And do they have the attributes um, if they don't have a previous track record, which some of them don't, the younger younger ones necessarily, do I, do I feel I have everything, you know, to execute well? Um, and then are they, are they great humans that I would want to work with um, or, and or be, be led by? Mm. Uh, now, they're not always, that's not always a resounding yes in terms of would I want to be led by them now? But, gosh, I, I probably wouldn't have said yes to my 26-year-old self <laughs> either, you know. Um, but I know I am a I am a great leader. I've become a better leader. So do they have the capacity to grow? Do they listen? Um, and are they great humans? Because generally if they're great humans, they'll be open to the evolution that allows them to become really fantastic leaders. And so, yeah, I, I think that's why the ideation side of it, and I, I quite frankly I see that as the easier part. Mm. Um it, the tougher part is is the execution and sometimes the even tougher part is to lead yeah. <laughs> through that execution um, and do that well. So, so what have you seen as some of the differences of people who are executing well? Are there, are there certain characteristics or processes or approaches that they have that help them execute more effectively than those who aren't? Definitely. And the number one thing I, I think in life generally, is they do what they say they're going to do. And if they don't do what they say they're going to do, they let people know why and what else they're going to do instead. You know, there's no slippage in time. If there is, it's communicated. There's no change in strategy or if there is, it's communicated and the purpose as to why and what the impact will be on the business is also communicated. So, um, yeah, that's that's crucial. They also have really strong structures in terms of reporting mm-hmm. and keeping an eye on and pulse checks on the business and all aspects of the business, not just not just the dollars. And 
I think holding people in the team accountable as well. So not just being as a, as a founder and or CEO, the one who's accountable, but also allowing other people to be accountable and then calling them on, on that accountability if, if things aren't happening. And I'm wondering just because I know some of the listeners, I, I, I assume that you've answered that a little bit from that sort of founder or leader or um, executive team in terms of how they execute. What about the person who's in that middle organisation in a big, you know, a big four bank or a big accounting firm or the, a big corporate and they've got ideas but they just can't get traction or they're struggling to bring them to fruition? Do you have any ideas for them that they would might help them do that more effectively? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great question and I've been in a big four bank. It's the only job I've had. I sold my one of my businesses to ANZ and so I know exactly what you are talking about and I was an entrepreneur in there and and definitely felt that so I can relate to that but I think the key is are you in the environment where the audience is ready to listen and receive your idea um and if you're not, you're going to find that incredibly frustrating, you know. And if you want to be in an environment where that's the case, then you might need to make a move. I, I think it depends, you know, in terms of if you're talking about an idea that you want to execute and incubate and then take to the world, um, if it's an idea for process improvement or, you know, to help the business, then I think it's important to find a champion in the business. So when I was at ANZ, I identified, you know, there were a number of different what I call sort of dynamos in there. Uh, I just made sure I quickly identified them and built a relationship with them um, so that I had, you know, at least someone to bounce off um, and say, hey, I was thinking about this, what do you think, what's the process I go through if I want to, you know, take it up to a more senior level. So it, it's those kind of, you know, who's the champion within the business? But overall, like if it's a big idea and, and you want to execute it, you know, are you in the right environment to do so? That's sort of the first most important question, I think. Is there a case for someone just sort of starting the idea and and putting some runs on the board and getting traction before getting that champion or does that senior leader or influencer really be a critical component that you've just mentioned? Yeah, it's totally understand the question. It's, you know, do you take that stakeholder on the journey from the beginning? And that's probably a judgment call really, uh, you know, uh, but I would say no, not necessarily because, to me, nothing's more impressive than someone who doesn't just have an idea. They've actually gone away. They've done a business case for it. They've thought about, you know, the why, the how, you know, and what it's going to cost and, and they've done the work. And so I would definitely say it's way more impressive to take a key stakeholder, you know, some form, even if it's a couple of pages, you know, of a plan and then get their input and then go back and, you know, take them on the journey. I don't think you have to take them from ideation stage, not at all. Just changing gears slightly, Jane, how do you consume your information and source 
relevant content versus what's sort of noise and, and irrelevant? Mainly, so daily, I get an email and listen to a podcast called The Squiz, which is a couple of uh, young Dynamo women who've put together like a summary of, of the news, but in a bit more of a bite-sized light kind of way. So I really like consuming that at least, you know, in the morning at some stage. So I feel like I'm on top of it. Uh, I generally look at the Australian Financial Review on a daily basis as well. And then that's probably from a news perspective, that's it, unless there's things that sort of come across my desk or other rabbit warrens that I go down if I, if I read the paper. In terms of my other passion, it's really, you know, uh, other sort of podcasts or books, generally books, uh, audio books when I'm walking the dogs. or So that's just me, you know, on Audible and, and looking at things and getting referrals based on things I've consumed before. And then there's a few platforms like Gaia is one that I really love that's got a lot and there are meditations on there but it's more uh, really interesting. Like I'm, I'm listening to and looking at the Dr. Joe Dispenza uh, series at the moment called Rewired, um, so a little bit scientific as well to back up some of the philosophy. So, yeah, there's sort of a, dif- a few different things that I dip in and out of, but most of it is audio. And you mentioned books. Is there is there a book that you've read that fundamentally had an impact on your life more than uh, more than another? The number one, I would say, is Louise Hay. You can heal your life. I, I think it's just the most phenomenal book uh, to read, especially when you've been through sort of challenging periods. Um, and the other one I, I read, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. It's basically um, he was a UK journalist and suffered from depression and went on a journey after being quite heavily medicated and realising that it sort of wasn't getting him the results, went on a journey of discovery around, you know, the true causes of depression. And it was just, I mean, it was the most beautifully written book um, about quite a, you know, heavy topic, uh, but also just so insightful uh, and really, really struck a chord with me around how big a part, you know, meaningful work, connection with community and all those really important things play in people's mental health. So it's really, and just kind of got me thinking generally about what else, you know, I want to be doing. So that that's probably had a huge impact on me in the last 12 months too. Thank you. And what about for you, Jane? Where can people find you or follow what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm not hugely active on either. I I don't have, I've never had a Facebook. I'm, I think I post once a year on Instagram. I'm like, that, but they're probably the places to to find me. But the the best way to follow what I'm doing and focusing on really heavily at the moment is through Smiling Mind. Um, so it's really, you know, I want people to follow what we're doing there. I, I'd love them to even take the five to ten minute guided meditations and make it part of their day. Um, that's that's the best way you can follow me. <laughs> Great, and thank you for that. I'm a I'm a user of the app and uh, and can endorse it wholeheartedly. Jane, this has just been a phenomenal conversation, and 
I just want to thank you for giving your, your ideas and insights so generously. Thanks for your time. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think listening to more interesting and insightful conversations like this one is a good investment of your time, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, recommended reading and free events that I regularly run to help you advance people and performance, then sign up for content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com free stuff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.